The Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate works to develop new technologies and get them into commercial production. A lot of work has focused on technologies to speed up airport screening and make it more accurate. Now a unit of science and technology has won an interagency partnership award from the Federal Laboratory Consortium, specifically high-definition advanced imaging and shoe scanner technologies. For more, we turn to Program Manager John Fortune. Mr. Fortune, good to have you back. Hi, thanks for having me, Tom. Well, tell us first of all about the technologies here, because... You know, it's kind of true, but people maybe overlook the fact that over the years, screening at airports really has improved many, many times over. And you kind of look back to the early days to realize how far they've come. So tell us what these two latest technologies are that were able to be commercialized. Sure. So while there have been really considerable areas of progress in airport screening, as you mentioned, over the last uh, 10 to 15 to 20 years, there are some technologies that have been in the airport for quite some time, including the current uh, what we call advanced imaging technologies, which are the passenger screening systems. The current versions of the airports were rolled out in the 2009 to 2010 timeframe. And what we're basically doing is looking at a next generation version of that system. Think about standard definition television versus high definition television. This is, uh, we call it the HDIT, it's the high definition advanced imaging system. And what it does, is it provides a much crisper, clearer picture of passengers and potential threats as they pass through that system. But it's also coupled with the automatic algorithm so that the threat detection is automated. No, nobody views any images uh, as has always been the case for TSA for a very long time. So we're basically trying to come up with a system that is much more effective in detecting threats on passengers, but also doesn't pick up what we call false alarms. A false alarm is simply you have an item, a clothing item, for example, that somehow shows up as a threat when in fact, you know, it's just a pocket on your shirt. And that results often in secondary screening and passenger pat downs. It slows down the line. It's not, not good for the passenger. It's obviously not something that TSA sure. uh, wants to have to do. So, you know, the better image that you can get and the better the computed algorithms are that are coupled with that system, the less likely it is that you're going to have to pat down people. So it really does two things. It detects threats better, but also is designed to get rid of some of these annoying pat downs that travelers have to deal with. And on the shoe side, that's kind of coupled with this, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So the shoe issue has been one that's really been kind of a tough nut to crack. Going back almost 15 years ago, passengers have been required to remove their footwear when they are traveling. And it's a challenge to image footwear because there's lots of different kinds of shoes and thicknesses and materials. And so there have been some attempts in the past to come up with successful technologies to scan shoes, but we're really looking for something that can do it very effectively and also very quickly with the idea that perhaps it could be built into the existing passenger imaging system so that you know while you're standing and having the passenger screen, your shoes would be screened at the same time. Of course, the ultimate goal is to allow people to leave their shoes on at the checkpoint, which is something we haven't been able to do for a very long time. And the neat thing about the shoe scanner is it's really using a lot of the same pieces and parts that are in the high definition advanced imaging system. You know, the same types of antennas and the same types of computer processing. So we're able to really uh, make very good use of one investment that ST has done on the passenger screening side and take a lot of the same components and use those to build the shoe scanner system. That's really what that's about. And by the way, I have a pair of flip-flops, which I never wear on planes. But if I did, they have metal bottle openers fitted into the bottom. That's the kind of thing I could get away with now because it's just a harmless flat piece of bottle opener that would appear as just metal in there, you know, otherwise. Correct. And one of the things we have thought about, because this is an experimental technology, right? 
So we are wondering how this is going to be best used. And we're still working with TSA on what this would look like. So another possibility would be perhaps your shoes are scanned in an earlier step of the process and you get a green light or a red light. So you could uh, either be asked to remove your shoes or perhaps you, your shoes are successfully scanned and you can move on through wearing your footwear. So these are the types of things, the operational side of the house that we're still having very active discussions on TSA about you know, where they would be in. Because you could definitely, I'm dreaming a little bit here, but you could imagine walking up where you're putting your carry-on bag on the conveyor belt to go through the x-ray system and you're standing on the shoe scanner, right? And the light turns green and you just walk through with your shoes. Or if the light turns red, no big deal, you just take your shoes off. What if, you know, three quarters of everybody could leave their shoes on? That would be pretty good, right? So we're, we're working very hard on the technology side but we're also working with TSA on how we could successfully implement the technology in the field. We're speaking with John Fortune. He's program manager for Screening at Speed at the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. And on the development side, these new versions of these technologies, how does it work? They're developed under grants, and then once they are proven, then you move to the commercialization stage? Correct. So we have a number of research and development awards with different laboratories or companies that are sometimes using universities. We have a lot of different types of folks we partner with S&T to develop new uh, cutting edge technologies. And um, one of the neat things, and you mentioned the award, the, the Federal Laboratory Consortium Award at the beginning of the show, one of the exciting things about this is it really does recognize the diverse array of partners that we, we've put together at ST to make this technology a reality. So the actual building of the systems, the hardware of the shoe scanner and the high definition AIT is done at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, PNNL, up in Richland, Washington, they're a Department of Energy National Laboratory. We have them partnered up with another DOE national laboratory, Sandia National Laboratory, which is doing a lot of the software, the algorithms, the how do we detect the threats. And also very importantly, how can we make these systems very adaptable when they're finally deployed? We don't want to be stuck with the algorithms that are on there when we put them out in the field because computational science changes you know, almost daily. So if somebody comes up with a new way to detect a new threat, we want to be able to very easily plug that into the system that's already out in the field. So Sandia is helping us with that piece. We have to test the systems. And so we use one of our own laboratories, the Transportation Security Laboratory of Atlantic City, New Jersey, which is part of S&T. And they've done a tremendous job collecting real imagery and real data from these systems. And we use that to further develop the systems and to test our algorithms. One really neat thing we did a few years back is we pulled in NASA, which is also part of the award. And NASA helped us run a prize competition with a company called Kaggle. And we were able to collect images on the high definition AIT, that's the passenger imaging system up at TSL, and release these images. And uh, we got, we had about 500 people enter this competition and we awarded prizes to the top eight entrants. And as a result of awarding those prizes, the government got rights to these algorithms. And now we're developing these algorithms so that they can be the future of threat detection. So we built the hardware piece and now we've got from this prize competition, you know, this really great software, a very, really great combination of different software approaches that can help us detect threats more effectively. And of course, I mentioned TSA as well. I mean, this is all for TSA, their primary customer. And we talk with them, you know, and work with them consistently and constantly to make sure that, you know, we're going in the correct direction and our building at ST demonstrates their needs. So, you know, this team that we've been able to put together on the award has been really critical. And so to your question, you know, we, we have different awards with these different entities so that they can fill these different needs within the program. And in the end, what we come out with is a fairly robust system with supporting software. Right. And uh, we actually very recently licensed that to a commercial 
partner with the idea of you know getting this you know out in the field. Um, Got you know, it. Hopefully in the next you know, few years. But the award is partly the interagency aspect, pulling together all of these expertise units from across the government to be able to test this technology and then move it to commercial. So the commercial entity then is almost like a systems integrator to put all these parts together in a way that is deployable at scale. Fair way to put it? I think that's fair. You know, we build uh, typically a limited number of prototypes when we do R&D. And sometimes we'll build one, we'll take it out, put it in, we'll take it to our transportation security laboratory, or we'll take it and put it in an airport for a short period of time, spin the wheels on it and see how it works, you know, and, and then we'll go back and we'll adjust and perhaps build a second prototype. So we're not in the business of, you know, building large numbers of systems. So when we get a design that is uh, showing enough promise that it's going to meet TSA security standards and fit into their operational concepts, then it becomes time to pull in somebody from the commercial space that, as you said, can do system optimization, manufacturing optimization and start turning out a larger number of units for ultimate implementation in the field. Really fascinating. I guess I'd fly barefoot if I never had to go to a restroom. <laughs> John Fortune is the program manager for Screening at Speed at the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back 
to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current uh, current times. I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so. I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. 
It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Whether in person or remote, open communication with your doctor is key to managing any condition, including heart failure. How have you been feeling? Um, I'm okay. Both are great options to continue having open conversations with your doctor about how you're feeling. I've had less energy. And when you speak openly with your doctor, they're better equipped to help. Visit heartfailuretalks.com to learn more. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.